0: This episode of CrossCut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines.
1: Hey, welcome to CrossCut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, Managing Editor at CrossCut. Two times this week, the U.S. Supreme Court defied expectations. First, when the High Court ruled that gay and transgender workers are protected under Article 7 of the Civil Rights Act and then later in the week when it ruled that the Trump administration would not be able to immediately terminate the Obama-era Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. The decisions were surprising and confusing. The addition to the High Court of Justice Brett Kavanaugh nearly two years ago resulted in a bench that we were told tilted decidedly right. So how was it that Chief Justice John Roberts, appointed by George W. Bush, sided with the more liberal-minded justices on both of these cases? And why was Neil Gorsuch, a Trump appointee, authoring the majority opinion in the landmark case cementing LGBTQ rights? Did we misread these justices? Or is there something else going on here? This week I'm speaking with Dahlia Lithwick, a great journalist and noted Supreme Court tracker, about the first of those rulings, why it happened, and what it portends for the rest of this term, which she calls the most consequential in her career. It's important to note here that we spoke prior to Thursday's DACA decision. We also talk about the Washington State Supreme Court, which, in another surprising turn, recently issued a letter voicing its support for the current anti-racism movement. Then later, I'll bring CrossCut reporter Lily Fowler on to talk about a community-led effort to shore up support for Seattle Police Chief Carmen Best. And I've got a programming note here. Next week, I'll be speaking with Nikita Oliver, the activist and lawyer who has been one of the most prominent voices in Seattle's Black Lives Matter movement. If you have any questions for her, send them to me at talks at crosscut.com. Now I'm going to ask you to help us out. All of the journalism created by the Crosscut Newsroom, including this podcast, is free, but it does have very real costs. As a nonprofit news source, we count on support from our readers, viewers, and listeners to continue producing the stories and conversations that keep you informed and engaged with your community. If this work is valuable to you and you would like to support our journalism, go to crosscut.com donate. Okay, on with the show. I'm here now with Dahlia Lithwick. Dahlia writes about courts and law for Slate. She also is the host of the podcast Amicus. Dahlia, welcome to Crosscut Talks.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Okay, so we're speaking on the afternoon of Monday, June 15th. This morning, the Supreme Court handed down a 6 3 decision that extends the Civil Rights Act's employment protections to gay and transgender people, Title VII, right? This is a big decision for the gay and transgender movement. You called it a landmark decision, and it caught many people by surprise. And I'm curious, did it surprise you?
0: It did. Back when this was argued in October, I think... At best, maybe you could have hoped that the court was going to do some kind of split the baby or narrow decision if they gave any kind of victory to the LGBTQ plaintiffs in this case. The idea that it was going to be just a route, a six to three huge, capacious win for the plaintiffs in this case is, frankly, I think, astonishing. We saw at oral argument that Neil Gorsuch was kind of surprisingly open to some of these arguments, but the idea that he would author an opinion that I think will be seen as Equally consequential to the marriage equality case, maybe more so, this will be a signal moment, I think, for gay and transgender rights in America. The idea that Neil Gorsuch, joined by John Roberts, unequivocally found that right in Title VII, I, I think is surprised everyone.
1: You know, there certainly has been a lot of talk about how this sort of goes against the grain of what we expect from Justice Gorsuch. Is there anything that you see from him that this aligns with, in a way.
0: Yeah, I think that the knock on Gorsuch from the left was always that he was very wedded to some of these Scalia notions of originalism, textualism, you look at the language, it means what it says, Uh, Mm -hmm. and often in a really crabbed, cramped fashion. This is very much a textualist reading, uh, very much looking at the plain language of Title VII that precludes the government from discrimination because of race, religion, national origin, and sex. And he reads because of sex to clearly sweep in gay and transgender workers that brought suit in these cases. Justice Alito, interestingly, writes this scorching dissent, and he tries to put himself in the minds of the people who drafted Title VII in 1964. And It's interesting because Gorsuch is not interested in trying to commune telepathically with the drafters. He just looks at the plain language and says, because of sex, clearly contemplate somebody who is fired. If they are a man who is married to a man as opposed to a woman married to a man, that is because of sex. So in that sense, it's just a straight on plain textual reading. That, in some sense, we could have seen that that's been sort of presaged in other things Gorsuch has done.
1: Is this a sign of how um cynical that we've become about the idea of partisan courts uh, that we can't read the nuance of of really how somebody views the law, and that this surprise actually has a great amount of meaning behind it as far as the way that we look at these judges?
0: There's a lot of ways to slice the salami here. I've been thinking about it. And I think there is one reading of what happened here, which is just a purely pragmatic reading. We are staring down the barrel, I know we're going to talk about it later, but of probably the biggest term in my career covering the court two decades. The court was not going to sign off on 10, 5 to 4 decisions, conservative uh, 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 versus liberal appointees of Republicans versus appointees of Democrats. There was no way going into an election mm. year that they were going to run the board for Donald Trump. And I think that if you look at the whole board, this is actually at least in hindsight, a little bit of a gimme, that you can have a few defections from the conservatives on the court. I don't know that it disproves that this is a very, very partisan court or that judging has become an extremely and unseemly partisan business. I think it does say that in some sense, gay rights in America is a done deal. And you are going to be in some in the parlance of many on the right or the wrong side of history for these cases. There's not great arguments left. So this is in some ways an easy case to flip on. Mm. There's no doubt that the evangelical base that voted for Donald Trump so he would give them. Ironically, a Gorsuch and a Kavanaugh is going to be incensed, and we've seen that in the early reactions to the cases. But I don't think this is an issue that feels very, very dangerous for the court to move to the center on. I think some of the other cases that are coming down the barrel are going to be harder for the court to bargain with. And in some sense, this was the easy choice.
1: Hmm. Okay, so it was there was some political calculation here, you think?
0: I would say that if we know anything at all about Chief Justice John Roberts, we know that he is first and foremost an institutionalist. He cares deeply about the esteem and the dignity and the public acceptance of the court as a nonpartisan entity. And if we think about the last couple of years, the only times he's punched back at Donald Trump in a polemical manner is when Donald Trump takes aim at the courts. So he sees Mm -hmm. it as his job to, in the great tradition of John Marshall, and the great tradition he would say of William Rehnquist that he clerked for, his job is to put the court first. And so if you reverse engineer the term through the lens of how does John Roberts in an election year, when trust in other institutions is almost gone, How does he lift up public opinion around the court as an apolitical institution? And there's going to be some decisions where he throws a bone to the left. And it's not hard to look at this case as emblematic of, right, John Roberts wrote a blistering dissent in the marriage equality case. He is not a fan of advancing a gay rights agenda or writing into law that which Congress has not created. So I think this is just a really savvy, savvy operator, doing exactly the thing that he does best, and to suggest that if he was just one of nine justices who could just throw a vote, I think he would have voted against a expansive reading of Title VII to protect gay rights. I think he did it for very, very calculated, practical, savvy reasons. It's the same reason, by the way, I think he defected last year on that big census case.
1: Hmm. So, you know, there's a narrative that's going on here where we had late last week, the Trump administration comes out and um, ends protections for transgender people in uh, in healthcare. Is Donald Trump out of line with with where his conservative court is at at this point?
0: I think it's a really good insight that this court is a little bit trying to telegraph how much it plans to carry water for Donald Trump's agenda. The Jeff Sessions Justice Department, which then became the Bill Barr Justice Department, was extraordinary in its attempts to use the Supreme Court, almost to weaponize the Supreme Court to get what it wanted. And it did that in a whole bunch of ways. Uh, most notably, it would leapfrog cases to the Supreme Court rather than letting them percolate through the lower and intermediate courts. It would just turn to the Supreme Court and say, Save us now. And it did that a bunch of times. Hmm. We saw the Justice Department buck a longstanding norm that said, look, if the Obama administration was for DACA, this Justice Department is for DACA. If the Obama administration said Title VII sweeps in uh, gay and transgender workers, this Justice Department... But that didn't happen. We saw Justice Department go on the attack on a whole bunch of different issues. And then, as I said, skip intermediate courts altogether, run to the Supreme Court and say, give us relief. And I think that that was a pattern that, at least in my world, was really shocking because we've not seen the Justice Department act as though it was just foot soldiers for the president. And what it meant was you got kind of a pile up of cases where everything was on the front steps of the Supreme Court. There was no issue that wasn't rushed to the court. And part of the reason I think on Monday we saw the court swat away a whole bunch of Second Amendment gun rights cases. We saw the court swat away sanctuary city claims. We saw the court refuse to to get involved in qualified immunity, case after case after case. We're seeing the court I think in some ways say, look, we cannot do absolutely everything Bill Barr has on his Christmas list because there's 5,000 things on his Christmas list.
1: Yeah. I mean, I wonder, is that is that is that the way that the court should work? I mean, or should the court not be taking into account those political considerations?
0: That is the $40,000 question. I think that's been the age-old question, is how susceptible the court is meant to be to political wins and to popular opinion and to polling. And certainly that's the reason that judges were given lifetime tenure and they were protected from all of those political headwinds. But I think it's also true that since time immemorial, the courts have taken those political considerations into account. So I think that the court knows and this is again by design this is what the framers wanted that article three courts have neither the power of the purse or the sword the only power they have the only authority they have in the system of checks and balances is public regard and they have to be mindful of that and so whether it's explicitly the case that they should take this stuff into account before the 2020 election it, it, it is probably the case that they very much too, do take this into account before the 2020 election. And if I could add one coda, I would say the thing I've been saying all year is that almost every big ticket case that is coming down the pike in the next few weeks was actually capable of being argued argued a year ago, last spring. The court held almost every one of these issues over because the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation had such a profound effect roiling public sentiment and trashing the public ratings for the court and really forcing people to have very strong political feelings about the court, the court is very good in those moments at taking down the temperature. This, I think, what you're seeing is a version of the court being just very savvy about taking down the temperature a few notches. Hmm.
1: So what's at stake in this term? What are the cases that you're keeping an eye on?
0: This is, I think, the biggest term of my lifetime. Uh, what's coming down the pike in the next weeks and we don't know exactly when the term is going to end because they stretched it out a little bit after covid but in the next few weeks we're going to see daca which is all those dreamers that you'll remember president obama allowed them to stay in the country and to be eligible to work and to go to school donald trump rescinded that by way of a tweet so whether that rescission uh was proper is going to be decided and that will quite literally affect Tens and thousands of dreamers who put their faith in the system when DACA was afforded to them as a protection. It will have massive, massive effects on colleges, on businesses who have operated as though those dreamers were here legally and were not subject to deportation. The other big, big ticket case that everyone's waiting for is June Medical. That is the abortion case out of Louisiana. It's almost a carbon copy of Whole Women's Health, which was a case that was decided only three years ago at the Supreme Court about whether doctors had to have what's called admitting privileges in clinics in order to perform abortions within 30-mile range. If the court decides, having decided three years ago, that those admitting privileges law in Texas were pretextual, they were just a way to keep clinics closed, to keep doctors Mm -hmm. from being allowed to terminate pregnancies. If the court decides differently for Louisiana, it will only be because Anthony Kennedy left the court, Brett Kavanaugh came on the court. So it's an incredibly consequential case, not just about the future of Roe v. Wade, but whether the substitution of one justice for another in a few short years can fundamentally change the rule of law. So this idea of stare decisis, you know that that precedent means something and it endures is on the line. Hmm. The last and probably the biggest and most political one is those Trump financial records cases. There's two different subpoenas, one coming out of uh, the Judiciary Committee, one coming out of the New York uh, of Cy Vance's office, both trying to investigate Trump's tax returns, among other financial records both making claims that we thought were pretty open and shut cases after the Paula Jones case, after the Watergate Tapes case, about being allowed to probe presidential records and presidential actions. In both cases, Trump uh, and his Justice Department have taken the position that he cannot be subject to scrutiny, not by Congress, not by a grand jury in New York, not ever, not on a plane, not on a train, not on a SOX, not in Fox. this was the case where famously, one of the lawyers argued, even if he shot someone on Fifth Avenue, he couldn't be subject to this kind of scrutiny. So in some sense, this is going to be the test case, again, going right into the election of whether Donald Trump can in fact be completely immune from congressional scrutiny or from scrutiny by a grand jury.
1: And is there any sense on on where that case is going to land, what that decision is going to be?
0: I think I would probably go back to what I said at the beginning, which is I'm trying to look at the whole board and see what gives and what doesn't. Um, If you'd asked me before... Uh, the Title VII cases came down when I thought maybe uh, there was going to be a huge blow struck against the workers, the gay and transgender workers of America, I might have felt differently. Now I think Mm -hmm. this will probably embolden the court, at least in that abortion case and possibly uh, in the DACA case to do something very, very bold in favor of Donald Trump. And if that's the case, my sense is looking, again, at the whole board that the way to resolve this massive massive uh, financial records case is to kick it down the road to say oh we're mm-hmm. going to send it back down to the lower courts we're going to use some different level of scrutiny hope the case goes away and resurfaces after the election
1: I've been keeping a scorecard here and I'll I'll let you know how you did <laughs> so uh let's talk a little bit more about what about what happened today um you know the the court also declined to reconsider uh the issue of qualified immunity for police today an issue that's of you know major concern to those seeking um police reforms right now can you tell us briefly what qualified immunity is
0: Yeah, this is a really long standing line of Supreme Court doctrine. And essentially what happens is that police officers and other government workers, you know, people who work in, in prisons, government officials generally, they are not personally liable unless they violate something that is, quote, a clearly established right. And the way the cases have worked out clearly established that that standard is so high that it is almost impossible to find them liable. Pretty much, you can only be held liable subject to this qualified immunity standard, if a different court in their own jurisdiction has considered the exact same facts and declared that to be illegal, at which point they should have known uh, that they couldn't do it. But again, as a practical matter, what it means is nobody ever gets tagged. Nobody ever gets tagged for misconduct. There is so much going on right now and asking the court to take on yet another hot-button issue, one that is really the volcano right now in this country. And the court just said
1: no. It makes me wonder about this moment that we're in right now, suddenly uh, reexamining uh, criminal justice in a in a really kind of radical way that, you know, even a month ago was not being uh, talked about. And, and it, it makes me wonder about what the court's role is in this moment. And by courts, I mean all of the courts. And in particular, the Washington State Supreme Court, they drafted a letter, an open letter, earlier this month. And uh, can I, I, I'm going to read a, a part from it. Is that? Please. Um, Recent events have brought to the forefront of our collective consciousness a painful fact that is, for too many of our citizens, common knowledge. The injustices faced by black Americans are not relics of the past. We continue to see racialized policing and the over-representation of black Americans in every stage of our criminal and juvenile justice systems. Our institutions remain affected by the vestiges of slavery, Jim Crow laws that were never dismantled, and racist court decisions that were never disavowed. So you spoke about this letter in the latest episode of Amicus, and um, I'm just... Curious, what is remarkable about this letter to you?
0: Well, for one thing, it was signed, I believe, by every member of the Washington State Supreme Court. Breathtaking. Breathtaking that that kind of language and that kind of taking responsibility was signed by everyone. I think that the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court did a version of that last week. And I think maybe some other state Supreme Courts have followed suit but I hold it up for contrast against the U.S. Supreme Court, which up until, you know, very recently was making claims like we can Dismantle the Voting Rights Act, right? This is the Shelby County case authored by Chief mm-hmm. Justice John Roberts because we're over race. Race is it was super bad, but now we're all good. And why subject those poor southern states to the indignity of preclearance, you know, when they put voting rules into effect? And I think that that locution and, it, you know, it's the thing that John Roberts will be remembered for in a, a school busing case uh, out of Seattle, he wrote famously, you know, the only way to get past race in America is to get past race. So we have to do away with all of these remedial efforts in affirmative action, in schools, uh, in voting rights. And that way, America will go back to being awesome again. And I think the, the, the blinkered thinking there that You know, all of the things, all of those vestiges of Jim Crow, uh, all the vestiges of redlining and zoning and systemic uh, racial uh, police violence and over-incarceration, that none of that has a race valence. That's nuts. It's nuts. And uh, we're seeing now, it seems to me, the reason people are on the streets is even... People who have not been subject to those things, to redlining and systemic police violence and over-incarceration, are looking around and seeing these are all vestiges of a centuries-long problem that we never cured, at best we papered over, and that while John Roberts wants to say... You know, I I wipe my hands. Thank goodness that ugly chapter is over. America is now colorblind. We know that's false. And so if you look at the last few years of doctrine, at least on this question of race coming out of the Supreme Court, that really crabbed vision that everything is okay. And if we just stop worrying about race, race wouldn't be a problem. I think in a lot of ways, even good liberals were guilty of some of that thinking, right? We were in post-racial America and Obama was emblematic of how we're all over the problem. And I think the last couple of years have really put that to the lie and the last couple of weeks have really, I think, seared into most of our consciousness, like it or not, that systemic violence violent, brutalizing racism is still a part of us. For a state Supreme Court to acknowledge that, not just to tinker around the margins, but to say, holy cow, you know, we in the judiciary have been a but-for contributor to that systemic violence and degradation and lack of dignity. It's such a huge pivot even from where the courts were, I think, six months ago. I just don't Hmm. think I've seen that kind of institutional taking responsibility and pledging to do better, not coming out of the courts.
1: Who is the audience for this letter?
0: Everyone. I think that they were first and foremost talking to black and brown people in the state and uh, reckoning with their own complicity in systemic injustice. I think they were talking to lawyers around the state and saying maybe you should reckon with your own complicity. I think they were trying to model something for law students and college students and activists. This is what it looks like to step up and say we were wrong. And I think they were maybe even trying to model something for other judicial bodies around the country. I think that it was an attempt to say, this does us almost no harm. It doesn't diminish us. It doesn't belittle or degrade us. What it does is it opens a channel to being really, truly honest. And it's time. It's long past time. So I guess maybe I would say, who weren't they talking to? I think they were trying very, very hard to show the rest of us what it looks like to say we as a judiciary have been a part of the problem.
1: Hmm. And so this, in a way, is also an attempt to shore up the legitimacy of the court. Uh, these do appear to be very honest feelings. They are they they are very, very um, examined feelings uh, and truths. And this is a cynical way to look at it, but there is this management of like that that in order for the courts to have power, they need to have buy-in from the people.
0: I I love that you're saying that. I hadn't connected it, but I think what you've just flagged there is it's hard to do that in an opinion, right? It's very easy to do it in an an extrajudicial letter to say Mm. we're not going to, within the four corners of a written opinion, do mea culpa for uh, what's come before. But what we are going to say is it is completely patently obvious that we were wrong.
1: Hmm. Well, and I think and this is brings brings me to my last question for you. And it's you touched on it uh, in uh, in the last episode of your podcast. You know, we often think about um, about the laws being this sort of like emotionless sort of space, especially those of us who are out on the outside of it is that is this place of you know logic and and arguments but not really of um considerations of the humanity of the people who sort of are the gears and and i just wonder if this feels like a moment where um where there is some humanity that's being kind of shown here by the people who are the justice system are the courts And if this expression is a sign of a sea change within the field of of law in general.
0: I hadn't thought about it as systematically as I should have. And then in that podcast, I was talking, uh, as you'll remember, to Angela Unwachi Willig. She's the first Mm African-American woman dean of Boston University Law School. And she had, by the way, for her part, written this extraordinary letter to her students talking about George Floyd and their pain. And one of the things that she said that was really striking to me was, we have this, as you just said, very mechanistic, very formalistic, very dry, icy, almost brittle notion of the law and the rule of law and statutory interpretation as these mechanical justice machines. And The more you inject emotion, passion, personal experience, the more that distorts the outcomes, right? Then you get biased outcomes. And what she said, and I think is really true, is that as soon as an African-American woman dean says to her students of color, I see you. I feel your pain. She's accused of being biased and of being emotional and of being sentimental and lacking in rigor. And yet, for 200 years, white male deans of law schools have set the terms of the game. So we have a default where we say all of those mechanistic, formalistic, rigid rules, those are unbiased and fair. And anything else that inflects on that with personal experience is bias. And the best example of this, right, is Sonia Sotomayor, who famously gave a speech at Berkeley when she was still uh, on the appeals court, on the federal appeals court, where she talked about a wise Latina woman might come to a different outcome uh, from a wise uh, white man. And you'll remember she got pilloried for that at her confirmation hearings for the implication that she was biased, right? That she had a thumb on the scale for minorities. And by the way, she renounced it. She was like, oh, I was wrong. I shouldn't have said that. But the truth is, hmm. what we now know is that life experience and where you come from and what you've seen and where you've been and what you know and what you don't know because you haven't seen it, all of that affects judging. And so for judges to pretend that they're just oracles who speak to the framers about some mystical, rigid truth just carves too many people and too many experiences out of the story. And I think what Sonia Sotomayor was saying, what the dean of BU was saying, what I think, by the way, every justice used to say about Thurgood Marshall is that when you sat in a room with Thurgood Marshall during conference and he would tell you about Jim Crow and he would tell you about having to go up the back stairs or the side stairs in a courthouse or getting punched in the face for being an African American lawyer? It changes everything for everybody who hears it. And Justice Scalia used to say, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor used to say, Anthony Kennedy would say, We learned so much about what we didn't know from listening to Thurgood Marshall. And I think. I think what I what I want to say is not that this makes you biased. It just makes you wiser. It makes you see your blind spots. And the idea that the judicial system, that individual judges are just brains in vats or robots who shouldn't know what they don't know, that's just nuts. And so I don't even think this is a question of should they be sympathetic or should they be emotional or should they have extra solicitude for certain communities? I just think, understand that you've been fed a lie and perpetuated a lie all those times that you've said, this is just a machine. It's not a machine. It's built of human <laughs> human experience and human ideas. And for most of history, those were white, wealthy male humans, but doesn't make it a machine.
1: Yeah. Dahlia, I really appreciate your perspective. Thank you so much for being on Crosscut Talks.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Next time we'll do it face-to-face in real life.
1: Oh my God, that would be fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) And now for a word from our sponsor, Alaska Airlines. Alaska is taking care to the next level with a renewed commitment to providing a higher standard of cleanliness and safety. From airport check-in to boarding, from takeoff to landing, next level care involves COVID-19 preparedness plans and procedures developed with the FAA and CDC. This includes electrostatic disinfectant sprayers and onboard filters that remove 99.95% of airborne particles. Alaska is also putting proper social distancing procedures in place requiring masks of employees and guests, providing sanitizing stations and wipes, reconfiguring seating arrangements, limiting in-flight services, and more. When you decide it's time to fly, Alaska is prepared to take your travels to the next level. Learn more at alaskaair.com slash nextlevelcare. Welcome back to CrossCut Talks. I'm speaking now with Lily Fowler, a staff reporter at CrossCut. And this week, Lily filed a report on a community effort to shore up support for Seattle Police Chief Carmen Best, who's been facing some criticism following her department's response to anti-racism protests. So, Lily, first, can you tell me about this event that happened on Sunday that you uh, that you wrote about?
2: Sure. It was a gathering of clergy and community leaders, a lot of folks who have been part of police accountability groups trying to hold police accountable. There was 25 clergy community leaders at this church in, in the Central District, and they were there to talk about police accountability in the recent movement. But first and foremost, they were there to defend um, Carmen Best and
1: her job. Why do people believe that Carmen Best's job is at risk?
2: It wasn't clear why they thought her job was at risk. One a pastor, a bishop there, said that there were, quote unquote, subliminal messages about calling for a resignation. And I think what he was referring to was... There was a press conference the other day between Durkin and Best, and some people started to speculate that Durkin might be calling for her resignation at that press conference. And then, as it turned out, nothing happened. But what also surfaced was it was very clear that Durkin and Best were not on the same page as far as police abandoning the East Precinct in Capitol Hill. And so... You know people have wondered you know is that going to escalate and are we going to see best lose her job in the next few weeks
1: hmm. so who are these people that uh that are vocally supporting her and, and what are they saying about her
2: so the the gathering that i wrote about it was a, a last minute uh press conference they said it was pulled together within 24 hours And a lot of the people there have been leaders in the community for years with regard to police accountability. One of the first speakers was the mother of Omari, which some um, younger folks might be uh, familiar with because he's been streaming the protests from Capitol Hill on a regular basis and has been at the forefront. But his mother is head of Mothers for Police Accountability. And she was there and spoke some pretty powerful words so they were there basically to defend bast and to say you know if any if there's any fault to go around here we want that fault to land squarely on mayor jenny durkin and not bast we're going to defend our first african american police chief in seattle she's made some mistakes but this is unprecedented times she's admitted to those mistakes and we stand you know behind her 100%
1: is this a uh, is this a generational divide? I mean, you said that, you know, you have Omari who I, I don't know exactly what Omari's politics are on this, but then you have his mother being very vocal about um, about supporting best. I mean, is there is there a sense that there is sort of an old guard of uh, community community leaders in the black community? And then there is this younger generation that maybe there is a, a difference of opinion here.
2: Yeah, definitely. I expected there to be some kind of golf, but I did not expect it to be that wide. They spoke for over an hour at this church, and there was not one word about defunding the police.
1: Hmm.
2: Now, I followed up with some of them after the the meeting, and so when I talked to some folks one-on-one, then they said, well, you know one pastor said he was he he could see defunding the police and he would be supportive of that others said that would have to look more closely at the budget some said they were outright against it so there's a variety of opinions but the the emphasis was definitely different than what you hear from protesters out, out on the street black clergy have often been at the forefront of civil rights movements and when i reported on of the protest in Ferguson, Missouri, after the death of Michael Brown, there was a lot of talk about how black clergy then had sort of taken a step back and, and, and young leaders were at the for- forefront. And that's happening here today, but the, the gulf is even wider, I would say, because whereas then the talk was still about police reform, now a lot of the protesters are just calling for outright defunding of the police and i think it's going to take some time before maybe some of the old guard and the and the younger protesters land on the same page
1: hmm. you know one of the interesting things i think one of the most striking quotes from your story was actually about uh one of these leaders perspective towards the uh capitol hill occupied protest or the uh capitol hill autonomous zone uh what w- whichever way you're calling it what, what was the view of that protest? Can, can you tell us um, what, what they said?
2: Yes, it was clear to her. She just thought it was a distraction that, you know, it was these kids playing around, mostly white kids in Capitol Hill, camping out, doing their thing, and, and in a way, co opting the movement, that it, it was a distraction from the main message about police brutality. And she didn't sound particularly angry about it. She just sounded like this always happens and, you know, was very dismissive of it.
1: Hmm. So what does this all mean for the anti-racism movement and for Carmen Best?
2: Well, I think that the clergy got their message out. I think Best is more secure in her position, but I think it also raises some pretty serious questions about where exactly how this is going to move forward. There are city council members who have said they agree with the call to defund police, but is it going to get messy if more and more people jump in and say, well, I don't know. I don't know if we agree with that. And if that's the case, then where do we, you know, how do we compromise on that and how do we move forward? So it'll be interesting to see what happens in the, in the next, you know, few months.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, well, Thanks so much for coming on the show, Lily. Appreciate your reporting and perspective here.
2: Thanks. Thanks for having me on.
1: And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Lily and Dahlia for coming on the show this week. This episode was engineered by Rusty Bacall and produced by Jake Newman. You can subscribe to Crosscut Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more on the Crosscut Talks podcast, go to crosscut.com slash talks. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Baumgarten. We'll be back next week with another episode.